Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here in Montreal for the NeurIPS conference, and I've got the pleasure of being seated with David Spiegelhalter. David uh, is chair of the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication at Cambridge, as well as president of the Royal Statistical Society. And he was one of the invited speakers here at NeurIPS talking on making algorithms trustworthy. David, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. Uh, before we jump into the topic of your talk, please share a little bit of your background and how you got involved in statistics, machine learning, yeah. uh, and kind of the confluence of the two. Exactly. Well, I, I'm a statistician, as you can tell. And uh, I was around in the, one of the last summers of AI in the 1980s. And I was very interested in computer-aided diagnosis, such as it was then, and interested in statistical approaches to that using simple Bayesian methods or logistic regressions, the standard stuff. And okay. um, and that was an exciting time. And I got very interested in this new idea of Bayesian networks and, uh, and graphical models. And so in the 1980s, I really worked and developed this thing called the Larison-Spiegelhalter algorithm that was for exact propagation in Bayesian networks. And we did a lot of work in that. And then I went into Bayesian graphical modeling, developing the bug software for Bayesian Monte Carlo, Markov chain Monte Carlo analysis and and so on, and you know, worked all the time in this sort of intersection of, of um, you know, what you might call machine learning and AI and statistics. Uh, for the last 10 years, I've been much more to do with communication. Um, I've got a job that involves communicating statistics and risk and evidence, and now we've got a center, this strange center in the maths <laughs> department at Cambridge, with a great gang of psychologists and communication specialists, ex-BBC people, web designers. I'm very interested in producing trustworthy material uh, that communicates numbers and statistics and risks and predictions and so on. Okay, uh, that's really interesting. I was wondering what the meaning of risk and evidence communication was oh, almost anything to do with numbers. <laughs> you know, it's better than public communication and statistics, I think. Right, right, right. Okay, fantastic. And so you're uh, here at NeurIPS talking about making algorithms trustworthy. What does that mean? Yeah, I, I'm, the, the issue of trust is very important. I've been very influenced by this wonderful philosopher in the UK, Honora O'Neill, who studied Kant and has come up with this very important idea, which has sort of been very influential, that organizations and developers of systems shouldn't be trying to be trusted. There's the wrong objective to try to be trusted. What they should be doing, what we all should be doing, is trying to be trustworthy. In other words, to earn that trust, because that is within our control to be trustworthy. And this idea of being trustworthy has, has, has a big impact in the UK. The National Statistics Code now puts trustworthiness as its number one objective. Why is that nuance uh, important between trust being trusted and being trustworthy? Uh, because being trusted is something you want, but other people can only offer it up to you. Mm. Being trustworthy is something within your control. Got and it. that means really analyzing what it means to be trustworthy. Okay. And so what does that mean from a statistical perspective or how can st- statistics inform trustworthiness? Well, I, I think that in, in the talk, I break trustworthiness of an algorithm or any sort of system into two components, that the system itself should be trustworthy. The claims it makes should be trustworthy. You should be able to rely on them. Or if you can't rely on them, it can tell you how confident it is. 
The other thing is that what is very important is that the claims made about the system are trustworthy by the developers, by the commercial entity or whatever. So you've got to not only believe the system, but you've got to believe what's said about the system. Mm. Now, what that leads you into very quickly is the importance of evaluation. And in my talk, I draw an analogy with the highly developed evaluation phases that are used, say, in drug development in pharmaceuticals, which statisticians, I've worked in that area for decades. Mm -hmm. And then just very briefly, uh, four phases. Phase one is safety on a few healthy people. Phase two is proof of concept done on some selected people to try to optimize the dosage. Phase three are the big controlled trials in which you actually compare it with a comparator, and that allows you to market the drug. And phase four is post-marketing surveillance. And what I did was draw an analogy with developing algorithms that are going to go into practice that phase one is just the digital testing that people do in, in, on, on a set of test cases. Phase two is laboratory tests where you actually compare it, say, with doctors if you've got a medical system and do the user-centered design for the interface. And phase three is well, field tests where it actually goes out there and you actually evaluate what its impact is, which might be beneficial, but it could be harmful. You never know what side effects it might have. And phase four then is the post, once the thing is out there, monitoring to make sure it's not degrading and that it's not making mistakes. And so I suppose what I'm saying is that on the whole, when I read about evaluations, they rarely get past phase one. They're just sort of accuracy on test cases. Some of them moving into phase two, comparison of, you know, diagnostic systems with medical, with experts and things like that. Almost nothing about phase three, what actually is the benefit impact when these things are put into practice in society and, and properly evaluated. And I think that the, um, you know, in order for claims about a system to be trustworthy, then you need a much more rigorous evaluation. In order for claims about a system to be trustworthy, you need to have a much more rigorous evaluation. My sense is that we're very far from that today in the world of AI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I suppose what I'm saying, this field is developed so wonderfully. It's so, the stuff at the conference is so amazing. But it's still, for all that fantastic technical capacity, at a very early stage. Because when these things start moving into society, you find you know, people saying, hey, come on, you know, I want to demand. It's not, you know, it's not immediately obvious that this is going to be a good thing in all areas. Mm-hmm. And so one needs to, I think you know, this area is due to mature into something which, which does rigorous evaluations. Uh, it's interesting. So one of the controversies at last year's NURPS, then NIPS, was kind of a call for increased theoretical rigor uh, around uh, deep learning in particular, mm-hmm. but you know our current approaches mm-hmm. to AI mm-hmm. in general. Uh, this is a call for rigor also, but a very different one, mm-hmm. one from more of a statistical perspective. Yeah. And, and, and it's, about, it's about a, a, a rigorous test of, of what does it mean to actually implement this. Mm-hmm. So you need both because you need the rigorous sort of internal analysis in order to demonstrate that what it says is trustworthy. Mm-hmm. So, the, because the part of the trustworthiness, of course, this is where we get to explanation, is to be able to say why it's come up with its conclusion, mm-hmm. to be able to justify that conclusion. And from a, the other statistical perspective, I take very strongly because statisticians are obsessed with uncertainty, getting the error bars right. You know, mm-hmm. we're as much concerned with the uncertainty as we are about the point estimate. And mm-hmm. so that's what we bring. And I think again, if a if a claim is going to be made. And especially when it's made with some uncertainty or lack of confidence, you've got to understand what that means. You've got to be able to rely not on the on the um, claimed confidence of that of of, of what is what is say what an algorithm comes up with. Mm-hmm. And you talk to you provide examples of, of this, the, the kinds of claims that you uh, envision 
this kind of model being applied to and, you know, what you'd expect to see or what you've seen in kind of passing a claim through these filters? Well, in the talk, I just give various examples of different phases of how some statistical ideas can come in. Just at the early phase, when you're comparing algorithms on your database to to see, decide which is the best one. You know, I talk about ranking algorithms and how using some bootstrap methods on on the test set, you can get a probability that any algorithm is actually the best rather than just producing a simple league table. Again, Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of statistical work on league tables and essentially taking them apart because just because something happens to rank best on one particular set of data does not mean it's the best algorithm. Mm-hmm. It's for the football team. Just because a football team is top of the league doesn't mean it's the best team, because there's always luck involved, and we're rather good at trying to put numbers on luck. Mm-hmm. So there's that aspect. The phase two, um, again, the you know recent critique of systems that have made comparisons with doctors, saying diagnostic systems, which are actually being slightly you know quite pulled apart because of their lack of statistical rigor. And, you know, it's very good they got to that stage, but actually they're not doing them very well. Mm-hmm. They're not doing to the standard of rigor that one would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, for phase three, I talk about an old trial I was involved in for diagnostic system. It was a terrible system, but it actually helped when it was put into practice. And it's because it wasn't because of what the system, the computer was saying. It's because it just it changed the culture of data collection and encouraging people to make early diagnoses and being mm-hmm. more confident about their work. So there's all sorts of unintended ways that systems might benefit, but also unintended ways in which they might harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, was, I went through those, sort of those, um, those applications, but then I went on to this idea of transparency, which is, that, which, you know, is an element of trust, trustworthiness. And this philosopher, Honora Neal, has got some great things to say about transparency. She thinks transparency is, could be, can be really dangerous. It's not a, an end in itself. Mm-hmm. especially in the sense of disclosure, in that you, know, you can be very transparent and yet nobody can understand what's going on. If you, you, know, you could release the code or something like that. It's right. very transparent, but people, it's hopeless. Right. It's hopeless. So um, she's really pulled apart transparency. And so it's, well, she's making this appeal for intelligent openness, which means that any information you give, and this is a really good checklist, any information you give should be accessible. So people have got to be able to get at it. It's got to be intelligible. They've got to understand it. It's got to be usable. It's got to meet their needs. And it's got to be accessible, which means somebody needs to be able to check the working. Not everybody, but somebody out there you know, needs to be able to check the working if necessary. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're using deep learning methods, you know, that's really quite a hard challenge to counter. I did mention what I thought was some very nice work being done by Google DeepMind with, in London with Moorfields Hospital on analyzing eye scans, mm-hmm. in which they've, you know, deliberately trained this network so to provide intermediate steps Right. segmentation map so that it doesn't just go straight to a diagnosis it's got a probabilistic right. diagnosis it's actually putting in the intermediate steps which seems a really cool thing obviously and that's because that project seems to be very strongly influenced by the clinicians themselves who mm-hmm. want that that's the the way in which they're used to thinking about it and they mm-hmm. wanted to map their way of thinking and because many people some are claiming now that um, you don't necessarily have to make a trade-off in performance in order to get a, a much more interpretable model that it actually, you know, there's vast numbers of models, vast numbers of options. It gives very similar performance, mm-hmm. especially, and especially as actually a lot of the differences in performance are largely illusory. That was what I talked about earlier. Okay. Um, and so, um, you know, actually, you know, that the, the struggle to, to you know, among the great space of models you can use to choose one that actually enables a much more transparent, much more, you know, better explanation makes it more trustworthy. Because people can see the reason. You ran off several 
uh, of the qualities that Nora and Neil yeah. uh, outlined, yeah. but they're they're all very subjective mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. seem to be in some ways at odds with this statistical rigor that we're no, going for. yeah, yeah, but no, no, exactly. But that's I think I've, <laughs> I spent I spent all my time working with psychologists now. Yeah, so, so I've been very influenced by this, and I'm not even going to try to to define exactly what explainable or interpretable or transparent right. means. Um, but, but you can um, be quite rigorous about your evaluation of some of these aspects. For example, in the interfaces for the systems we build, we evaluate three things in which they have an impact on people. Cognitive, do they understand it? The behavioral, what does it do to their their behavior and their intentions? And the affective, how does it affect their emotions? And we want to measure all of those and they can be completely different. So it's very important to get that feeling of of, what do people get from it? And, and these are done, for example, through surveys? Yeah, yeah. So we, we um, the psychologists will do, um, you know, actual direct face-to-face interviews on people. This is the phase two evaluation mm-hmm. within a laboratory. We get patients in, get them to talk through a system, uh, actually do some eye tracking as well, see how they're using it, using it, mm-hmm. and then re- and then evaluating on, on these things. The metrics are quite difficult to do. You know, you know the satisfaction with which a decision has been made is quite a, a quite a tricky thing to evaluate. But you, you need to try to be able to do it. So, you know, these rather loose things, it, it is worth the effort of trying to measure them as accurately as possible. I use as an application an idea a system we've we've put a front end on called Predict, which is for women newly diagnosed with breast cancer who are trying to decide what other therapies to have apart from surgery, um, which is based on a fairly statis- you know, basic statistical analysis of the database of 4,000 cases, and it produces survival curves up to 15 years for women, and then looks at what would be the effect. These are personalized to various attributes of the, of the tumor and the woman, and then um, you know, it says how that survival would change if you take particular um, therapies. Mm-hmm. And those, um, the effect of the therapies, all that data is based on clinical trial, causal data from randomized clinical trials. And that's fine. Our idea is that the system, which is currently used by doctors, um, will be used by doctors talking to patients, It already is, and even by patients themselves and support groups. But we're mm-hmm. using exactly the same system for all these different groups. And that means having very good explanation facilities, both for the terms, but also ways of portraying the risks to patients. And this is serious stuff. This is the chance people are going to be alive in 10 years' right. time. But with very careful use of wording and imagery and even the colour and uh, etc., you know, we, we, we can do it. Um, and the point about this is that for explanation like that is that two things. One size does not fit all. Different people have got different uh, needs. They've got different levels of understanding about numbers and graphics. And so what you need is both multi-layered explanation with a you know, very simple level at the top through to a much deeper level. I, you know, we put the maths in. If you want to, you can see a PDF with all the maths in. You can get the code if you really want it. So you've got all those layers of explanation vertically, but also horizontally. So when we're explaining 15-year survival, we can provide bar charts and survival curves and icon arrays and tables and text, etc. All of those are options depending mm-hmm. on what people prefer to see. So you've got both vertical and horizontal explanation choices. There's no correct way to do it, but you mm-hmm. can try to evaluate all of it. Mm-hmm. And only some people want to see the stuff at the bottom, but they should right. be able to see it because that's part of the accessible openness. That example is a compelling one. I find that you know, oftentimes with dealing with, uh, with physicians, there's, this, uh, there's a presumption of trust or trustworthiness mm-hmm. that... Um, you know, may work for a lot of people, but sometimes you want a little bit more data and 
they're not always prepared Things to... Things are changing. People are making much... Not everybody. You know, I don't know. I just completely out of off the top of my head. I'd say half, about half people are, are quite prepared to still go along with a very paternalist point of view. You know, thank you very much. Tell me what to do. Right. Just tell me what to do. I don't want to know anything else. But an increasing proportion, you know, are asking questions and actually wanting to exercise some of their own rights. I've known... I've got friends who have used the system that we've been working on in order to challenge their doctors and saying, okay, I do, I'm not... It's only a tiny benefit. I know I'm going to get terrible side effects. I d- I'm not going to have it. Yeah. And they've using that to challenge. It's empowered them, empowered them. I think this is very valuable. Not only that, but in the UK now, there's, there's a, a much stronger legal structure on um, what must be explained to people in order to get informed consent for treatment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in other words, all this you know, should be explained to people. Mm-hmm. And so what we're providing is actually some of the tools to allow doctors to, to carry out their work better. Okay. There's a thread in the AI community around taking ideas from uh, adjacent fields like, you know, electrical engineering, the idea of data sheets uh, or model cards, some folks have called them, and and basically different ways of documenting the Mm -hmm. characteristics or biases Mm -hmm. of different uh, AI data sets or systems. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like uh, a, a part of what you're doing is a similar idea, but uh, applying ideas from clinical trials and the statistical methods associated with clinical trials and and the medical yeah. uh, and pharmaceutical field to uh, the way we talk about and communicate mm-hmm. around AI systems and uh, machine learning models. And, and, and uh, yes, and not just the sort of pharmaceutical area, but there's been a, I've been involved for years in building prognostic systems for people, and mm-hmm. then both um, te- evaluating them. And, and putting them into practice. And one of the crucial things about the evaluation that people are over, we'd get really obsessed about in a, a sort of pedantic way that statisticians mm-hmm. tend to operate in is that the probabilities must be meaningful. If you say 70% probability for something or 70 out of 100 chance, it's got to mean that, meaning that some, you know, out of the number of, of all the times you say that, it should happen in 70% mm-hmm. of the time. The idea of calibrated probabilities, in other words, that the uncertainty, the accuracy of the uncertainty Right. It is as important as the accuracy of the of the main number. Right. Uh, is a very you know, statistical idea. Um, and yet it's very I think it's very important because otherwise you get these grossly overconfident things. Like, oh I'm ninety-nine percent sure that this is the diagnosis. That, that, I mean that is grossly misleading. Mm-hmm. That really is terrible. Mm-hmm. So um that's a, I think a very another very important way thing that can be brought from statistics, which has worked a lot on you know how to evaluate the calibration of probabilities, the sort of test statistics to use, and so on, in order to check that element of trustworthiness of the claim. Right, right. It, this all calls to mind, uh, at least in the U.S. I don't know if it's similar in the U.K. When you're adver- advertising pharmaceuticals, there's like you have your 30-minute ad and then your long, uh, <laughs> long fast red, red, uh, red, red, and they Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you shouldn't have to do. That. I mean, that's just some you know regulation. <laughs> what you watch should we you know? But at the same time, you know, that's kind of a summary of a data sheet. Yeah, of, but that's not that's not trustworthy communication. Uh, that's like that's, that's like point. having to sign. You know, we're getting some software and there's terms and conditions 16 pages of terms and conditions yes that is not intelligent openness in no way is that accessible usable you know (laughs) comprehensible accessible it breaks every rule and it's terrible that sort of communication but it's there to obey a law but it it, it is a complete sham in terms of good communication Uh, i agree i agree At, at the same time it is one step better than, you know, yes, 
Or yeah, no, yeah, yeah. The computer says yes. The, the computer right, says exactly. No. Only a tiny <laughs> step, a tiny better. step better. A tiny step better. And of course, the worst systems of all are, are proprietary systems that are used in courts to decide about recidivism risk or bail, right? right or anything like that. It's shocking because they're proprietary. They're totally untransparent. You've got no idea what information is being used in them. I mean, that's absolutely shocking. Again, that breaks yeah. every rule. You know, everything I'm trying to talk, I'm talking about is broken by that kind of system. Right. Uh, so, key takeaways from your talk? Oh, um, yeah, well, I suppose <laughs> basic statistical ideas, you know, and their experience <laughs> and other areas have got a lot to offer, a lot to offer. Um, but also, again, you know, I'm not just taking ideas from, you know, from statistics. I'm taking ideas from philosophy and psychology, and empirical testing and things that, that really, in this maturing discipline, this unbelievably important discipline, I think could take a lot more account of. Great, great. I think it's very much in line with some of the key themes that I'm hearing at this year's NeurIPS. You know, it's in fact two of them. One is the importance of, you know, fairness, transparency, uh, et cetera. And uh, the other is kind of the importance of interdisciplinary approaches. And you're kind of bringing both to the table. Because, and there's some wonderful work going on. You know, this morning I really featured the the FAT ML, you know, um, social impact statements, you know, the the lists that they've got, partly because they do not identify transparency as an objective. They've they've learned themselves that transparency is just a means to an end. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's it's no good just being transparent unless you obey Anora O'Neill's ideas of what transparency means. Mm. Well, we'll definitely provide a pointer to uh, Nora O'Neill and your work as well, of course. Yeah. And the, the talk's up on Facebook as well. I just looked at it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, David, thank you so much for taking the time no, to no, chat real, with us. No, a real pleasure. A real pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.